The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their healthcare practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Dr. Tirona Lodog. Dr. Lodog is a physician, associate professor, and fellowship director for the Arizona Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona. She was appointed by President Clinton to the White House Commission on Alternative Medicine and has served on the advisory board for the National Institute of Health Center for Alternative Medicine. Before attending medical school, Dr. Lodog was a respected herbalist with training in midwifery, and she's here today to talk about her new book, The National Geographic Guide to Medicinal Herbs, The World's Most Effective Healing Plants. Welcome to Health Watch, Dr. Tirona Lodog. Well, thank you for having me. So, so at the beginning of the book, we have a, a foreword by uh, Andrew Weil, and he talks about the resurgence and in interest in herbal medicine. What is your take on, on why that's happening? Well, I think there's many reasons. One is that, you know, uh, in many parts of the world, herbal medicine never fell out of favor. Um, many parts of the world still rely on herbal medicines as a primary form of, of self-care and taking care of their, uh, people taking care of their health. Um, with all of the research that was being done, especially in Europe, uh, on herbal medicine, as that was being translated and brought into the United States, uh, you know, we started seeing St. John's Word on the cover of Time magazine. You know, ginkgo was you know, under, uh, undergoing huge amounts of research from the federal government. I think people are just more aware of herbal medicines now. And given the uh, growing cost of pharmaceutical drugs and the fact that many, many studies now are showing that these drugs are not that much more effective than placebo, I think people are turning to herbal medicines um, for, to, you know, for, for a uh, more economical uh, and, and also safer form of treating a lot of the minor complaints that we're dealing with today. It was also interesting that um, Dr. Weil points out that some herbs actually have actions that no drugs currently have, like he mentions milk thistle protecting the liver cells from injury. And there isn't actually a drug that does that that could be used in, in, instead of milk thistle. No, we don't. And milk thistle, that's a a great example of integrative medicine where in some cases we have to prescribe a medication uh, and its and its potential side effects can be mitigated by a natural product there was um, milk thistle has been used for decades for um, you know as an antidote for death cat mushroom poisoning in Europe it's one of the few antidotes that we actually have for this um, this mushroom that causes the liver to really necrose and, and, and to die. It kills people. About 50% of people who eat these mushrooms die. They did a study at Columbia. Uh, Kara Kelly was the lead researcher, and they had children who had uh, cancer who were undergoing chemotherapy. And in this particular chemotherapy treatment, uh, the main side effect, and, and the reason it has to be discontinued, is because the liver becomes damaged. And so they monitor in the bloodstream liver enzymes to tell how much damage is happening. And in this study, what they did was they gave the children whose liver enzymes started to go up, they gave them milk thistle, about 5 milligrams per kilogram of this particular milk thistle extract. And what they found was that the liver enzymes trended back into the normal range and the children were able to continue and complete their chemotherapy on schedule. 
So imagine, you know, the, the possibilities for a plant like milk thistle when we have people with epilepsy who have to take medications um, to control their seizures, but they have horrible side effects, especially for the liver. Milk thistle has not been shown to interact in any negative way with any drug. Essentially what it does is protect the liver cells from drug or toxin damage. So it's a, it's a great example of a plant for which uh, there is a lot of use for today uh, in, in modern life, but has its roots um, very, very deep in herbal tradition. They were talking about milk thistle being good for the liver almost 600 years ago in Europe. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned drug-herbal interactions and how there are examples certainly where herbs can actually help with um, integ- integratively with conventional medicine. But what's, what seems like we're, it seems like we're living in a weird time in the sense that conventional medicine, or at least the way they want to portray herbal medicine, it seems in general, is that on the one hand, it is very weak and ineffective in terms of actually treating anything well, and on the other hand, it's so powerful that it'll interfere with every medication that you're on. I mean, you hear that over and over again from people going to their doctors who tell them to stop everything that they're doing. How do you parse through that? I, I know that the the Guide to Medicinal Herbs that we're talking about today has a really nice, I think, and encouraging sober approach to it that looks at both tradition and research, but it seems like a difficult path to, uh, to go on. Right. Well, the reality is um, that most of the significant interactions we see in in clinical medicine are not interactions between herbs and drugs, but between drugs and drugs. Um, Drugs are powerful, and they can rev up and inhibit many kinds of enzymes that metabolize other drugs. Foods can do this. We know grapefruit juice is a classic example. It does just the opposite of what St. John's wort does. St. John's wort revs up a system of uh, an enzyme system that is responsible for metabolizing a number of drugs, many drugs actually. And so what happens is if you tar- start taking St. John's wort, you'll have less of that drug available in your bloodstream. Now that can be really a problem if that medication is very important and crucial for your life. That's why the, the drugs that were being taken for you know, to prevent a rejection of a heart transplant or a kidney transplant, and people started taking St. John's wort, um, it, was, it was terrible. Nobody could have predicted it. It's, you can't just predict a plant is going to have an interaction with a certain enzyme system. But grapefruit ju- juice does exactly the opposite. It impairs that same set of medicines um, so that the, the drug then becomes higher and higher. The level goes up and up and up so that people can actually become toxic from their medications. But I don't hear a huge outcry for banning grapefruit juice in the grocery store, nor are there any warning labels on grapefruit juice containers or on grapefruit themselves that people should talk to their pharmacist or doctor before consuming um, because it could make them, them have a toxic reaction to their, to their medication. So it's an, it is an interesting, I like the way you phrased it, it, it is an interesting time that we live in. My counsel is a physician, but also somebody who has almost 30 years experience working with herbal medicines are that you really, if the more potent your medication and more powerful it is for your health, or what we would call in medicine the more narrow the therapeutic window, meaning that if you get too much or too little, it can be really disastrous for your health. Those you have to be very careful with before you know, exploring uh, a lot of herbal medicines. On the other hand, a lot of the, a lot of the medications that we prescribe and many of the herbs, we've never seen any interaction. But I tell people if you're taking Coumadin, if you're on Digitalis, 
if you're on anticonvulsant medications for seizures, you really need to work with a doctor, somebody who's willing to partner with you. Most of these you can do lab tests, you can do blood tests, and you can know if the herb is interfering with it by the level going up or down. And the drug can be adjusted or the herb can be discontinued. Um, but for the vast majority of cases, the reason we don't see many herb-drug interactions actually in real life, in real clinical practice, uh, is because there, there aren't that many. We're talking today with Dr. Tirona Lodog, one of the authors of the National Geographic Guide to Medicinal Herbs. So near the beginning of the book, Dr. Lodog, you, you have a section about growing one's own medicine garden. Um, what, was, what are some of the plants that, for someone who maybe doesn't have a green thumb, you would choose to encourage them to start with? Well, there, you know, the nice thing is that many herbs um, really grow in spite, uh, in spite of us. <laughs> so they're very forgiving. Um, there are, most of the culinary herbs can be easily grown in pots on your balcony or in your, you know, backyard. Um, they're very easy. So basils, oregano's, thymes, rosemary, peppermints. I mean, these are all really easy to grow. And, you know, thyme makes a wonderful cough syrup. Thyme is, is just wonderful if you're getting an itchy or scratchy throat, a bad cough. Thyme is, uh, is still recognized by the European health authorities for cough, cold, and bronchitis. So you could have something growing right in your yard that you could walk out and, you know, not only put on food to cook with, but you could make a medicine out of. Peppermint's another classic example to use um, peppermint as a cold infusion meaning that you don't pour boiling water over it. You just, you just let it steep in cold water. You take some fresh, you know, peppermint out of the yard. Uh, take a, no, you know, five, six leaves, pour a cup of water over it, and just let it sit for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, and drink it. It has such a delicious, light, mint, refreshing taste. Peppermint when you pour boiling water over it or near boiling water over it and you let it steep, it can actually be kind of overpowering because of all the tannins. But if you do a cold infusion, there is nothing more delightful on a hot summer day. So there, there are many. Chamomiles grow. Calendulas. You can make your own ointments, you know, for your own massage oils, bath oils. So anyway, there are many things that you can grow in your garden. Don't be afraid to plant some herbs. And a lot of these, even though we use them commonly in food and or we buy them as teas, um, actually have some some powerful effects. I know that you mentioned calendula, and it's been studied, for instance, to prevent the burns on your skin from uh, radiation therapy. Yes, um, calendula um, calendula is one of the most soothing um, herbs you can apply. You can you can uh, make creams out of it. You can buy ointments that are already prepared. You could actually just take calendula and steep them in almond oil or olive oil in your kitchen, and, the, and you know, after a few weeks, you can strain the calendula out, and now you've got this nice oil that can be used for eczema, can be applied um, if you're getting radiation um, to prevent the burning that can happen, especially radiation to the chest or to the pelvic area. Um, it, it's called, you know, uh, diaper cream in many parts of the world because it's used for diaper rash. It makes a wonderful healing ointment. I think every household should have calendula salves in the medicine cabinet. I mean, you know, we, if we were going to create a wellness pantry for the future, you know, for the 21st century, um, there would be quite a few herbs in there, and calendula would be one. Calendula salve, oil, or ointment should be one. Well, one of the herbs that 
has quite a large section of uses in the uh, in the guide to medicinal herbs is lemon balm, which a lot of people here in Oregon will have in their yards as a weed somewhere. And um, I was curious if you could talk a little bit more about it. I was surprised at how many different uses it actually has. Yes. It's one of my favorite um, herbs. Uh, her name is Melissa, Melissa officinalis, and so it's this beautiful... Um, this beautiful member of the mint family. Back in the Middle Ages, they actually referred to lemon balm as the gladdening herb, which I just love that whole sense that that there was an herb that people used for happiness, for gladness. Uh, Lemon balm definitely has some anxiety-relieving properties, so it can take the edge off of feeling anxious. They've done studies in college students that have anxiety around test-taking and found that actually extracts of lemon balm um, created calmness, reduced the anxiety, but did not interfere with the ability to perform well on the test. So it's not like, you know, Xanax or Ativan that can be habit-forming or that can, you know, that can overly sedate you. It's very, very safe, safe for children, safe for adults. Lemon balm has also, there's an essential oil, which gives, you know, the essential oils are what give plants those wonderful aromas, the smell. But lemon balm, uh, uh, the essential oil is taken out of lemon balm, or the extract is made in a very concentrated form. And it can be applied, actually, to oral herpes. So when you're getting an outbreak of fever blisters um, or cold sores, you can use these lemon balm creams or lemon balm extracts and you can apply them um, to the to the lips, lip area. And it actually has been shown to shorten the duration and severity um, in a significant way in clinical trials. And, of course, we have, you know, acyclovir. We have things in the, you know, prescription world also that can do this. But let me tell you, lemon balm has no side effects, um, costs you, you know, a fraction of what acyclovir costs. Uh, and is safe for young and old alike. So lemon balm also, because it's a mint, can be very soothing for the stomach. Um, very, um, you know, you can drink it after a meal to help with gas and bloating and nervous stomach. I use it in a lot of young women who have irritable bowel syndrome that's brought on by stress. So, you know, lemon balm is just one of these amazing herbs. And, and I would remind your listeners, in 2009, 44 million prescriptions for Xanax in this country, 44 million prescriptions for one anxiety medication. I would say many of these individuals would do far better or at least as well with just using lemon balm. And another thing that surprised me when I was reading in that section was that there are actually studies on lemon balm and and helpfulness for memory and dementia. Yes. Uh, There's many of them, lemon balm, sage, um, there's a number of them actually that um, help with memory, concentration, and, and not only in, in young, but also in old, in, in, as we age. And you know that you know, there's, there's not a lot of medications that we have really to offer um, for people to help prevent dementia or to help improve memory um, that also don't have significant side effects. So sage is another one that's been shown to do this, and lemon balm as well. Just, just many reasons to bring these into your life. And, and if you like lemon balm, you can certainly just make up, you know, you can take it fresh out of the garden, fresh out of the yard, and you can make lemon balm teas out of it. And again, 
Uh, you can try them both with pouring, you know, near boiling water over them and letting them steep for five to ten minutes, or you can put them in room temperature water and let them sit for 30 minutes to 60 minutes, and you'll get a much lighter flavor, and you'll preserve more of those volatile oils, which are very sensitive to heat, and you'll actually get, in some cases, more of the therapeutic benefit from a cold infusion than from a hot one. We're talking today with Dr. Tirona Lodog, one of the authors of the National Geographic Guide to Medicinal Herbs. If you'd like to join the conversation on Health Watch, the number is 503-231-8187. Well, an, another herb that people might already have in their yard, um, which has a wide array of, of benefits, is fennel. And um, can you talk a little bit about some of the things that people could use fennel for? Yes. Well, fennel... A lot of people are familiar with fennel because if they've ever been to a, you know, a East Indian restaurant, they've been offered fennel seeds at the end of the meal. So why do people chew fennel at the end of a meal, uh, candied or, or otherwise? It's because it's one of the premier sort of carminative herbs, herbs that actually relieve um, bloating and gas and indigestion. So um, fennel seeds are wonderful for, you know, for any time you've maybe overeaten or that you've um, overindulged and you feel like you've got that, you know, kind of upset stomach too full. Um, so I love fennel for this. That's one of the things it's renowned for. Fennel is also a woman's uh, very good friend. Fennel seeds have been shown to help relieve menstrual cramping. It's a very good anti-inflammatory. Um, and, you know, in a head-to-head study where they compared um, fennel to a, an anti-inflammatory drug that is used um, for menstrual cramps, it was shown to basically be equivalent. So, again, um, you know, you could take ibuprofen for your menstrual cramps, or you could also use fennel. You can use fennel seeds, which have really no, no side effects. Another thing we use um, fennel seeds for uh, in, in herbal medicine is um, uh, so, some people use it as a... Um, a cough aid or for a cold aid when you really need to thin the mucus fennel is added it's approved by the german health authorities um, for upper respiratory congestion so um, i really like fennel i put it in a lot of my cold syrups and my cough syrups um, because it it's very good when people have uh, thick mucus, mucus that's hard to expectorate so it's it you know you got to kind of cough it hard to get it up. Um, emphysema, a lot of patients with um, emphysema have thick sort of mucus plugs. Fennel can be very, very useful in those cases. And last but not least, don't forget that fennel, when you chew the fennel, um, it also is good for your breath. It leaves sort of a nice licorice um, aroma and flavor um, to the mouth. If you don't like licorice, you probably won't like fennel, though. Fennel has a very strong licorice flavor. Um, so if you like the taste of licorice, fennel is probably a wonderful herb for you. Um, you know, but if you don't, um, you, you may not like it as well. Let's take a caller. Welcome to Health Watch. You're on the air with Dr. Lodog. Good morning. Uh, with the cold infusion that you mentioned with lemon balm and I believe one or two other herbs, could you please tell me what those other two herbs are? Uh, peppermint. I was talking about peppermint. But anytime you have a highly aromatic um, soft leaf, an herb that, um, has, that is really, really, really strong smelling, and you're wanting to preserve those volatile oils, um, a good way to do it is just to make a cold water or room temperature infusion. So peppermints, spearmints, lemon balms. I make a lot of my teas in this way. I also find that they're less upsetting to the stomach because peppermint, um, the longer you steep peppermint in hot water, 
or near hot water, the more tannin is released into the water. Um, and that, that can upset your stomach, and it can also, you know, cause constipation. So I like the cold infusions, um, especially as an alternative during the summer. I drink an awful lot of these teas out of my garden. So I would encourage you to try them. They're very nice. To be more specific, I have a question now. As far as the, uh, the herb, like the lemon balm, for example, would you kind of crush it up with your hands? I mean, like rub it between your hands and kind of smush it up, and then put it in the cold water, or just put it in the uh, put it in the water undisturbed? Well, I usually just take my hand and just sort of just squinch them a little bit before I put them in and pour the water over. So gently bruise them to okay. sort of prepare them for the extraction. And how much uh, like lemon balm? Uh, and how much water? How much lemon balm? What would the quantity of lemon balm and water be ratio roughly? You know, like four leaves. Four of the fresh leaf, um, just off the plant per cup. Thank you for the call. And and just for other listeners also, a lot of these recipes are in the book. So if people are interested in learning more about both how to grow things and how to put them into um, medicines at home in a really easy way, they can pick up the National Ge- Geographic Guide to Medicinal Herbs. I think we have another caller. Uh, welcome to Health Watch. You're on the air with Dr. Lodock. Um, I was wondering if you could... If you have any information on, like, Native American, I think it's bordifactants or contraceptives, Um, anything that you have in your book about um, women's menstrual health. Well, we have a lot on menstrual health. Um, You know, the abortifacients, I can tell you from more as my life as a midwife, um, uh, these are are complicated, and, um, you know, I think one would have to be very, very careful about using them and making sure that you use, you know, use them appropriately with the supervision of somebody like a midwife um, who really knows how to use them. Um, if anybody was pregnant, you know, anytime somebody's trying to cause a miscarriage, um, that's really hard because the body is really designed to hold on to the baby. Um, there are some abortifacients that were used traditionally and historically. If you're interested in the topic, I would suggest you get one of John Riddle's book, R-I-D-D-L-E. Um, he's written a number of books about Eve's herbs and, uh, and a number of these from an authoritative perspective uh, and a traditional perspective. Dr. Lodog, I know at the beginning of the show we talked about um, how uh, sometimes herbs are, are downplayed as, as not being very effective or their, uh, or their dangers in terms of interactions are overplayed. But now that herbs are really a big business, uh, Dr. Weil mentions this in the introduction as well, now that herbs are a big business, we're also having the issue of, of sometimes the herbs getting overhyped. And he, he mentions ginkgo as one that maybe is being overplayed for its benefits and, and memory. Um, how, how, as a physician and herbalist, do you sort out patients coming to see you uh, based on some sort of marketing campaign around something that maybe isn't warranted by the, the science? Well, I think that, um, I think ginkgo is, is not, I wouldn't consider it the same as a fad herb um, because there are a lot of, a lot of those. Um, every other week, there's the new rainforest herb that comes out that you know will basically cure everything. Um, those are the ones I would be a little bit more skeptical of. There are many, many herbs though that have withstood the test of time, meaning that they were used um, by different peoples around the world, even before we were really in in major communication with each other for the same thing. Um, so. I, I think the fattish herbs are those that really kind of, you know, pop up, you know, never before known, you know, mystery herb, um, uh, 
those are the ones that really worry me. Uh, most of the ones that we're talking about in the, um, in the medicinal guide to herbs are those that are pretty much tried and true and that have data on their use. Um, ginkgo is an interesting one because while I think people in this country, you know, our research was on if you have, you know, dementia or if you're, um, you know, a healthy person, 3,000 people, you know, if you're, if you're a healthy person over the age of, you know, 70, 75, if you take ginkgo, will it prevent you from getting dementia? There were a lot of criticisms of the study um, in no small part because, um, you know, in a healthy population, um, how many people out of 3,000 were actually going to develop dementia? It's, 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 they're hard to do these studies. I would say that ginkgo is, um, th- there's little question that ginkgo has beneficial effects on the circulatory system uh, and on the, on the cardiovascular system, and that what is good for the heart is generally good for the brain. I don't think ginkgo is a treatment for dementia, and I think 50-year-olds who take ginkgo for their memory are not going to experience much benefit for their memory. Um, however, I do believe that ginkgo, um, you know, has benefit for um, for the arteries, for the for the for the veins, for the cardiovascular system, and in the right patient, it can be therapeutic. Let's try to squeeze in one one more caller before the end of the half hour. Uh, welcome to Health Watch. You're on the air with Dr. Lodog, and if you could keep your question brief, that would be great. Is that me? That's you. Oh, hi. Uh, I'm calling because I'm in my 14th year of a heart transplant, and uh, right about now, my kidneys are about shot. They're telling me I'm going to have to be on dialysis or get a kidney transplant sometime in the relative near future. I'm wondering if there's any herbal combination or whatever that I could do that would slow down or even reverse uh, the kidney damage. Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important question, and it's sound, I'm going to answer it more generally instead of specifically for you since I don't know all of your medications and things such as this. Um, but milk thistle has been shown essentially to have the same sort of protecting effects on the kidney um, as it does on the liver. This is something relatively new um, in the research, uh, and it opens up a lot of possibilities uh, about potential use in, in, in patients that have problems with their kidneys. Um, I would also say, though, that it would probably be very important for you um, to talk to an integrative physician. If you go to the Arizona Center for Integrative Medicine, if you just Google the Arizona Center for Integrative Medicine, you can go up to where it says patients in public, and it'll say find an IM practitioner near you, an integrative medicine doctor near you. Um, these, are, these are people who have graduated from our two-year fellowship at the University of Arizona under Dr. Weil, and I think you know, working with somebody there who could actually really help you. There are a number of Chinese herbs that are renowned for kidney rejuvenation, but that would, again, you know, you'd have to work with somebody who could really work with your transplant team and, and those that are following your kidney function to make sure that you're not going to have any kind of interactions with any of the medications that you're taking. But Chinese medicine, I think of all the systems of medicine out there, um, that have an herbal tradition, um, they have the strongest when it comes to um, herbal remedies for the kidney. Well, Dr. Lodog, unfortunately, we're almost out of time. I wish we had more to talk about some more herbs, but I thought I'd just mention that um, I really love that there was a balance in the book also with um, some of the lore around the way uh, different herbs were used in the past, like mullein 
being dipped into fat yeah. and used as yeah. a torch, for yeah. instance, yeah. As lo- along yeah. with all the science. Like, it's yeah. a very nice uh, continuum that you do with each of the herbs. Well, you know, that's National Geographic, too. It's really, it's bridging culture, it's bridging peoples, it's bridging medicine, it's bridging all of the richness to this tradition um, for which it really, you know, it really deserves um, that, kind of, that kind of treatment. So the book is beautiful. Um, truly, you know, Stephen Foster's photos are in it. Um, I wrote with Rebecca Johnson and my fellow um, friend and, and colleague, um, Dave Kiefer. So I'm really proud of the book. I think people will really enjoy it. I think it's a wonderful book to have, you know, in the bookshelf for reference. Well, it was a pleasure having you on Health Watch today. Thank you so much. We're talking today with Dr. Tarona Lodog, one of the authors of the National Geographic Guide to Medicinal Herbs. Stay tuned for the rest of the Monday Morning Radio Zine.